podcast is brought to you by uh, 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 Here we go Everybody be cool, this is a robbery Need you cool Are you cool? Bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard, you know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you need to hang. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I'ma get medieval on your ass. You son of a bitch! Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies aren't. That, that's for goddamn sure. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. It's not the light. Starting to see pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you have my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to your monthly worship service where we help rejuvenate your soul through the good works of our Lord and Savior, Quentin Tarantino. I am the Reverend Scott K, and this is the Church of Tarantino podcast. My dear friends, it is Tarantino's birthday month. That's right. On the 27th, he will turn the ripe old age of 59. So we start the celebration by continuing our journey through his filmography by revisiting his second of three films that he wrote but did not direct. I am talking about Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers. But before we dive into all things NBK, it is my pleasure to welcome back for his second go-round, once again, coming to us all the way from across the pond in Norwich, England. It's my good friend, Mr. Steve Smith of the Way Past Cool Podcast. Welcome back, Mr. Smith, and may Tarantino be with you always. Hello, Scott. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Hello out there in internet land. Internet land. Internet land. It's crazy that we are recording this three months before his birthday. It's not even 2022 when we're recording this. But when it does yeah. come out, it will come out in March. And it is his birthday month. And he is turning 59, which is quite remarkable that he is turning 59. But it's also crazy to think that he was 29 when Reservoir Dogs debuted. It's going to be 30 years this year. What failures we are, eh? What failures <laughs> we are. <laughs> I've done nothing. Well, he's got to think, like, he has now relived the life he, in, in time, yeah, yeah, that he had yeah. when he released it. Like, he's now gone a year past what it was leading up to that. So, yeah. time goes by quick. I always say, days are slow, but years are fast. They just they fly by you. A day feels yeah, like forever. Yeah. yeah. Since the last time I talked with you, any new stuff on the podcast or anything coming up January, February, and into March as we're kind of early on, we don't, almost a Nostradamus type thing, because by the time the listeners hear this, you will have had an opportunity to either put stuff out or not put stuff out. Yeah, well, I've had a bit of a rest from uh, podcasting, but I've got about, about five shows that I'm in the middle of. Basically, the podcast is like, um, it's like a soundtrack. To a movie that doesn't exist, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, I've, I've so, heard so of, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes I may seem like I'm being inactive. I'm just putting these lists together of songs that I can. Oh, I totally. Yeah. Understand. So people are like, "Yeah, you haven't done a show in a couple of months." And I'm like, "Yeah, but I've got like five that I've, you know." Oh, I get it. No, it's it's putting a podcast together, whatever form you do. The easy part is what we're doing right now, just sitting down, hitting record, and you and I talking is yeah. the 
easiest yeah. part of it. It's all the extra. It's the pre-planning of what you're going to talk about, or in your case, what songs yeah. you're going to do. And then it's the exactly. editing That's part. That's what I was saying that on the side. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I've got plenty of stuff lined up. All kind of great, trashy rock and roll and surf music and rockabilly and rhythm and blues. And then there's all kinds of, like, you know, B-movie trailers and it's all just basically. So if you're a fan of this podcast, you yeah, should definitely you be know. listening to this man's podcast because it's basically a compendium as far. It's just basically the music that Tarantino would have yeah, done. It's like, listen best. to a Tarantino I soundtrack. I try my best. But yeah, so like, like I said, so I've got plenty lined up. So it's just, I'm now in the process where the recording will start. So yeah, I've got stuff lined up. Good, because you inspired me a hair. You haven't heard because as of this recording, we are exactly one week from the actual debut of this mm. show. But you haven't heard the actual opening song. Now, I created the song Ooh. myself, but I was like, you know what? I liked it was really you and Tarantino, but I grabbed a few clips from the movies and let it work its way into the beginning of it. So the opening song will have a lot of clips under the music I created. And then when it ends, it'll have the same music, but I, the clips uh. aren't there. But I hadn't decided how I wanted to do it, but re-listening to one of your podcasts and then listening to a Tarantino soundtrack, I was like, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm putting yeah, them in. That, I'm putting them in. That, it, it works. that sounds like fun to me. It just Can't works. wait. Can't yes. wait. I'm, well, yeah, you'll, you'll I'm hear excited. I'm excited. Soon. Yes. At this point, other people have already heard it because it just. Yeah, pre- I'm pre- the only one. <laughs> it was ahead of this episode <laughs> yeah. that we've been talking on. <laughs> Time machine, yeah. Can't wait. Well, now that we don't have to do too much of the horsing around like we do in the beginning, because you are a second guest, which I appreciate, because Natural Born Killers, of all the films that I'm looking for people to do, it's the one that a lot of people have a tough time with because a lot of people don't see it as a Tarantino film because he got story Full credit. Disclosure. When you asked me to come on this one, yes, <laughs> I was hesitant. I don't, That's I don't blame you because right it's a now. tough That's one. All I'll say right now, we'll get into it, but I was a bit. Well, so I went back and started rereading the screenplay, right? And we'll get into a second. But I found that there are things in the screenplay that are almost dead on in the film that then the things we'll talk about in the film have worked their way into Tarantino films, like whether they knew it or not. Funny thing is, is the DP on this movie, uh, Richardson, is Tarantino's mm, yeah, DP. Yeah. So there's a lot of synergy that, that that comes across. I read, I did read the screenplay, but it would have been at the time, pretty much that it, the film came out. And yeah. all I can remember from it really is thinking, maybe it's my memory, but I, I kind of felt like it just seemed to like be quite similar to True Romance. Am I wrong? I might be wrong. Well, we had that conversation, yeah, because remember, True Romance yeah. is supposed to be... Yeah. The screenplay that's written by this guy's experience with these exactly. two crazy people. So, Except it's really yeah, toned yeah, down. It's yeah. more turned into a and romance. Not quite yeah. the same, but I, I kind of felt at the time that I was like, are we not just <laughs> retreading, retreading familiar territory? I know there's elements that are different, yeah. but at the same time, I was a little bit like, yes. you know, couple on the run. Well, yeah, but even when I reread some of it, I was like, it's not as, I mean, there's things definitely changed, but I was like, there's not as much pulled away as, as it kind of seemed mm. like, you know, there are scenes that aren't there, but you're kind of like, well, you know, there's still some of the, of the meat and potatoes, especially even in his words that, that, that made it into the main film. Right, so. good, yeah. But before we do yes. that. Since I already had opening questions, usually I ask you what's your favorite Tarantino, all that stuff, just to get to know mm. the person. We've, we've already been, covered those. We've done that, yeah, yeah. So I sent them to you yeah, yesterday. Yeah, yeah. and I Because you made me think of them. I was like, I have to think of four new questions to ask him. We can't ask the same shit because we already know. So this comes from just whether I've been listening to other podcasts. As of this recording, right before the day before New Year's, the last day of 2021, I have finally watched for the first time ever, and I thought about it last night, I've watched all 12 of his films in one year. I've never done that. Like, never in the history have watched every single film he's put out 
in the same year. Mm. Now, a lot of it was because I started doing the podcast, but also by doing this podcast, I start, I was like, you know, I started to get my appetite re-wet for watching them all. And now that I own them all on iTunes, I just went through them. And last night I finished off with Death Proof because Death Proof was the one I watched almost two years ago when I started Watchers to Die. It was the very first episode we ever did on Watchers to Die was Death Proof. So I hadn't seen it since August of 2020. Right. So it's been over a year. Right. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to jump back into it because we'll cover it later in this year. But it'll be around exactly two years since the last time I covered it. So that was the last one I had to watch. And so I did. But by doing so, I started thinking about things that are left open and things that like become theories in the fandom. So we're going to start off with the biggest fan wondering of what is what. But what do you think is in Marcellus Wallace's briefcase? What do you think that Amber Glow is this is going to sound pretty boring? Well, no, I just think that's like gold bullion, you know, that's just gold in there. I am a hundred percent with you on that. I, I think it's some rare jewel, like the jewel of the Nile, or like it's like the art. It's, I think it's supposed to be a lot like the Ark of the Covenant, like it's one of those things where you're like, it's rare, it's priceless, and the minute your eyes go on it, yeah, kind of like that diamond that the lady threw in the you know, in the ocean instead of helping people at the end of the Titanic, yeah. you know, don't, don't, don't help world hunger, just throw this almost unvaluable diamond into the ocean. Yeah, I feel it's always been that. Now, I know a lot of people are like, well, I think it's the soul, or yeah, this I, and that. Well, there's nothing, I disagree. Obviously, yeah, because obviously I've had, I've had all sorts, just as you have, but I, I just feel like, but it's a very, again, admittedly hyper-realistic, but it's a kind of, it's not going to be anything supernatural or sinister, is it? I we're talking, so we're, either, talking, yeah. we're talking, we're in the land of cops and robbers, you know, it's going it, to, yes, we're in yeah, thieves, you know, it's going to, I think it's going to be just a very valuable and I think it's one thing, just by the basic, obviously we all know how they create it with the light, and so nothing nothing moves in no, the briefcase no. when, yeah. he, when he so, moves it, because it's all yeah. stable. So I always feel it's like one item, it's like one major item. It's one of those things where like you've heard about it, yeah, and you've never seen it, and then you see it up close and personal, because when he says, is that what I think it is? And then even when Brett is like, we got into this with the best intentions, because they stole something, they had no idea, and then they saw it, and they were like, you don't want to give it up. You, yeah, you know yeah. I mean? So I've always felt that something very valuable that you had heard about, it'd be like seeing like the Mona Lisa, like you, we've all seen pictures of this, but to have it right in front of you is a whole different experience than, you know, seeing it on in a picture yeah, on yeah, Google, yeah. you know, or... Or a replica in an, you know in a classroom. Yeah, exactly. Of. So yeah, I, I'm going to say it's it's like gold bullion. It's like a huge amount of gold in there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sparkly. It's something that would that would draw you in. <laughs> well, like I say, there's nothing supernatural in the you know it's it's going to be something very real, something very yes. real. And I know listeners will be like, well, what about the band aid? Now, the Ving Rhames Band-Aid, a little sidetrack, that was because he had a scar on the back of his neck he didn't like. That Band-Aid was put there by him because he was a little, didn't want to see the back of his head, which was going to be shown first, mm. with that. And it just adds to the lore. It's just a pure happy accident. Yeah. But that's it, you know. That he covered up. But but it adds. Exactly. I mean, if, if you take the guy's soul, he can't be alive. Like Let's let's all be honest. Yeah. You know, I suck your soul out. That's what keeps, yeah, you, yeah. keeps you going. It's but the like energy. Say, so that, that, that takes it into a different realm you know i agree like, i agree but yeah. it is fun it, it does make that's what makes tarantino well, that's, movies that's fun the, is when they leave things open exactly that's the fun of it you know so yeah maybe maybe but i think gold is just gonna set marcellus yeah, wallace up as the crime lord of yeah it's it's yeah oh the blood has been spilled for yeah, whatever exactly. obviously blood has been spilled a lot for whatever exactly, in this case yeah so yeah i'm going that I'm, that's my 
That's what I think. Speaking of how things turn out, what do you think the fate of Jules is after Pulp Fiction? So technically when he shows up at the bar at the beginning of the gold watch and he hands a case up, he goes to take a piss, whatever. That scene, whenever that ends, that's it. He's retiring that day. He's telling Marcellus after he's done talking to Vincent Vega that, look, I've had a change of heart. I'm out. Right. What do you think happens to Jules? Does he go walk the earth like Cain? Does he find out about Vincent's death? And does then he want to hunt down Butch? Or does he, he's already gone, doesn't give a shit? Like, he kind of like, that's why I got out of the life? What do you think Jules does with his free time now? I think he becomes like a private detective for criminals. Like a sort of John Shaft type character, yeah? So like like an L.A. gumshoe. But in like, I guess, I guess, I guess pop fiction is set in the, it, it is still in, LA, yeah. yeah, in the nineties, yeah. I guess. Now, do you think he's out there, for that, or is he? Because you know, he wanted to be the uh, finder of lost souls. Do you think he then goes and becomes that kind of private detective, trying to find people who are missing? Maybe, but ultimately, I think he becomes, like I say, like a private detective for criminals, and he's got his own TV series. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That that actually sounds like a really great show and spinoff. Like, it really does. <laughs> yeah. like, it just really yeah, does. It's every, so every does. week. Yeah. You know, he sat behind his. I he love sat it. with his feet up on the table, and that's every week you just get a different criminal coming in with a scenario that they need him to get involved in and solve. I, I think the name it's BMF Private Eyes. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's got his merchandise and everything. You know, it's got his wallets for sale, everything. But yeah, that's what I, I think. Now, the reason I asked that question is I read something recently, and I had never thought of this. And it just I loved the thought of it. I don't know how it would play in. I don't know how you combine it just because of what this person says. But there is a small fan theory out there that Jules is actually Rufus in Kill Bill. Because he says he's going to wander the earth. And Rufus is a guy who just kind of wanders and plays piano with anyone who comes through in that area. Now, again, it's a big stretch because you have to figure out how's he long to play, you know, play piano and then you know, some of the bands he names. And so the theory has some holes in it, but there is something romantic about the fact that because of how we know about Rufus, right? So Rufus is this black piano player in Texas. He's played with anyone who comes through, but he's really kept to himself, right? And we just know him as Rufus. And the irony would be that here he is. He gets away from this life of crime as best he can, but he can't ever get away from who he was. And he ends up getting killed in that chapel for crime. That he committed many, you know, many years ago. I just like that whole synergy of that thought process of like he got away from it. He goes, he's just playing piano. He's, you know, he's he's living a new life. He's a completely different person. And here he is. He gets killed at a wedding because he was going to be the piano player. I just kind of yeah, like the that feeling the, that, but that, that could be him. Thing about and again, I don't want to say that nowhere has Tarantino said any of this. It's just like a fan theory. He bought, I buy it. I'm there. Count me in. You know, it's like a, right, like no, well, like it I does say, feel you know, like something private, that Tarantino would do without you knowing. Thing, you know, all of it. His characters are just so cool that you can just imagine. Oh, you can just oh, imagine them in all these different scenarios. You know, and I'm, I'm like, I'd go with that. I'd watch that. I'd watch that movie. I just love the feeling of that. Like, all of a sudden, here it is. is we don't know what's happening to Jules. We forget about Jules. And here's Jules right in front of us. He's Rufus. We have no clue. And this poor bastard gets murdered anyways. And, like, he gets to come up. No matter what he's done, Crime they find him. Yeah, I, I, there's something about yeah, that yeah, I like. Bro. Even though it's probably not true, but I, I do like that. That, that. that makes me feel good inside sometimes. Yeah, I don't no, know. I never heard that one. I'd buy it completely. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I'd never heard that theory, so... That's it yeah. just recently, I just recently saw that, and there was just something about it. I was like, oh, I really like that. Yeah. You know, there's again, there's no concrete evidence yeah. for it, 
But it just it, it feels it feels right if you think about yeah. it for long enough. Obviously, they have to figure out how's he play with all these bands. You know what I mean? Uh, you know. So. It probably doesn't work because a lot of them he names like old. You know, I was a, a pip. You know, it's like well, then you can't. You couldn't have been in California killing people. But there is a part of it. Just yeah, it's kind of no. nice to just think that it I could like be him. It. Yeah. But speaking of Kill Bill, do you feel Vernita Green's daughter Nikki gets revenge on the bride? Now I know currently at this time out there in the ether, the tenth film from Tarantino, a lot that's picking up small steam is that he might do Kill Bill three, which would be. The ending of that story, the whole point of Nikki possibly coming to get revenge on the bride now, which would be 20 years later. So she would be in her... Yes, be. Gotcha. So they said she was four or five, so she'd be in her mid-20s. I kind of hope he doesn't do that. I love Kill Bill. I, ad- I adore Kill Bill. I'm, obs- I'm obsessed with Kill Bill. Me too. It is in the in the pantheon of, of just the movies he's directed. It's, my, it's number two below Pulp Fiction for me. Right. Kill Bill, I had that same experience like in Pulp Fiction, it's a little different. It was that, oh, wow. Like, just giddy. Just giddy with it. It's so Absolutely. fucking... Absolutely. Um, so, that is, I mean, that is a perfect setup, obviously. Well, originally he had said he wanted to do it 10 years after. So, 2013 was when he was supposed to do it. Because there's uh, one of the, the Spaghetti Westerns. I can't think if it was The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, or... I know that's a trilogy. So there was a Spaghetti Western that had a movie. It first came out, and then 10 years later, they revisited it because of a similar incident. Someone was trying to get... They they grew up and got older. Kind of like with the new movie coming out, The Northman. But instead, whatever happens to that boy in The Northman happens, and then in another movie, he, 10 years down the road, a new actor plays him, as we do, as Skarsgård's going to. And then we get to see... His revenge story ten years later, like he actually waited ten years, right. and then they they redid it. So that was Tarantino's thought process back then that this was going to eventually follow. I mean, up. if he did this, I'd be the first in line. But I'm already in line for the first. Whatever it is, I, I kind of see, and you know, I, I just don't feel like he'd need to revisit something. I think he's still. I agree. Got, you know, I agree. Um, but again, like I, I, I agree. Say, but if, if you're going to revisit any of them, that's the one that has a lot of uh, fertile ground because obviously L Driver gets her eyes poked out. We don't know what happens to her. Uh, she's still alive. You've got the whole sequence of will the girl come and find her? Will, you know, the whole thing was like L Driver finds Nikki and teaches her. Like, will that become to fruition? And then will we get like a showdown where like basically it's. Well, I'd kind of like to see in a third kill bit is obviously um, Vanita Green's daughter going after Beatrice, but somehow they'd have to team up. Because there's a bigger threat, you know. I mean, there's a million, there's a million. Like I say, you could go wild with it, you know. Because L, L Drive is like this blind assassin, yeah. Yeah. You know, you've got the daughter going after Beatrix, but then there's Beatrix's daughter. So is Beatrix, you know, trying to daughter? Well, to, uh, Uma Thurman's daughter, uh, what's her name, Hawk, who was in Stranger uh, Things and Stranger yeah, yeah. Things, and then in Once Upon a Time, they, you know, they've said her. Um, uh, Zendaya has been talked about as being Vernita Green's daughter. So there's, I mean, well, there's, there's a cast. A, even there's um, a million, yeah, it's just a million of possibilities, you know. But I feel like Elle Driver and Vernita Green's daughter. I don't know. They kidnap Beatrix, and then Beatrix's daughter's got to go. But then, he, but then L drivers. But then L drivers so bad that the two daughters have to team up. Yeah, you know, come on. Gotcha. So you're so you're saying Nikki goes for revenge, but then teams up at the end, ends up teaming up with the bride or the bride's daughter, depending on what happens. Uh, 
Nikki teams up with Beatrix's daughter to rescue Beatrix in the end because Al Driver's so evil and she's just created this new squad of... Gotcha. You know what? We call it because what could happen is is to push Nikki over the edge, she ends up killing her father. It says it was Beatrix and now... There you, know you go. There's a million comes things. And, then yeah. you can have, you know, then you got black, you know, the two daughters, you got black and white teaming up to go against evil. That's kind of... That's all there. Here's another fun one then for you Because now you've got I think I think you said this was your favorite character What does Aldo Rain do after World War II? Because the end of Inglorious Bastards Technically the war is over He's just carved his swastika Into poor, not poor But Mr. Hans Landa But now what will Aldo do? I have my theory what I think he would do But I would love to hear what you think Aldo Rain Is going to do Post Inglorious Bastards. I feel like that's a tough one because I kind of feel like he's like the boogeyman, you know, the, the American army used him, you know, to go into certain situations and, and he'll, you know, he'll do the things that no one else will do. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think eventually Rick Dalton plays him. <laughs> Rick Dalton plays Aldo in an in it. In the five fists yeah. of McCluskey, <laughs> the four yeah. fists of McCluskey. <laughs> I love that. That's what I think. <laughs> That's great. And then obviously, in some oh. way, you know, and you've got, you know, you've got, or maybe not the fourteen, love maybe that. not the fourteen fists of McCluskey. Oh, fourteen fists of McCluskey. Maybe yeah. not that. But, but it's great but I though. I think, I think Rick Dalton goes to Italy again, teams up with Enzo Castellari, <laughs> who did Glorious Bastards, the original Glorious Bastards, and he plays Aldo yeah. in a movie called what Suit uh, called that. You know, like um, Apache. Probably called the Inglorious Bastards. No, so that's why they no, changed called, it. There's a real like a, movie. Apache, yeah. Like Dawn of the Apache or something. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just yes. like Aldo, Aldo's exploits. Like Revenge of the because Apache. Because he's such a secret like guy. Like, like, I they like that. To, they have to dress it up as like um, fantasy when a lot of what he had. It's <laughs> all real shit that actually happened. <laughs> <I> <laughs> that's, what, that's where I I'm lo- going with that. Right, so I don't, re- so I I don't like really that. know what happens to Aldo. I just feel like. He just went through his life, participate in, in the most important political war events throughout history, yeah? Do you know what I mean? I like this. He becomes like a secret yeah, agent. Like, yeah. He's sort of like this psychopathic kind of like <laughs> nut job who they say, hey, Aldo can do it. If anyone can do it, Aldo. Exactly. He's the man for the job. Yeah, uh, so I think he just gets into all kinds of adventures. Pretty much winning in all the wars since World, World War Two. Yeah. Since World War Two, they sent <laughs> him all. He did. He's yeah, all, he yeah. did it all, man. And like I say, Rick Dalton plays him in Dawn of the Apache. I love it. That's what I'm I saying. That's my theory. <laughs> My theory is he gets well because he's part Apache, part Jewish, which is a very strange combination. <laughs> it really is. You're like, wow. And buddy's from Tennessee. Like, if you lived in America, you would know how that would like really fuck up with your head to hear like you're a Southerner who's Jewish and half Apache. It's just like, wow. Yeah. That's yeah. that doesn't happen. I think that because he's been killing Nazis, he doesn't want to stop killing Nazis. So I think the Israeli government eventually hires him and his team, and they go to like a Venezuela or down to Argentina where a lot of them disappeared. Since he does have a bit of the look, and I think he hunts. He hunts the Nazis. He becomes the reverse of uh, Hans Landa, where he's a Jew hunter. He becomes the Nazi hunter, and they go find the Nazis. Okay. That's just, I always love to see that in Glorious Bastards Okay, too. refresh my... Right, so Hans Lander, he doesn't die, does he? He doesn't die. Hans Aldo Lander's alive, so no, he's see, not going to kill Hans Aldo, Lander. 
Aldo Rain and Hans Lander. They team up. No, they team up. Oh, they could. That that would be that. Would, there you go. That, that be sort of like a that would like be a cool. Kind of, like um. But it'd be crazy because he always yeah, has to wear a exactly. hat because he's got, got the mark. Psychotic, yeah, you've almost got like this psychotic sort of man from Uncle type vibe. With like an American, an American. Well, you know what? That makes perfectly sense because you send the guy who would know the most about the Germans. There you go. He's the brains of the operation, and then Aldo the Apache goes in and, and takes care of business. <laughs> that's the. Yeah. That would be a great movie. I hope he. I hope that's the movie he makes. That'd be an awesome movie. That'd be fantastic. And they work. I love that. Kill Bill into it as well. Here's the thing though One of the kids who ends up being like he's uh, orphaned They end up killing Bill's oh, father man, And that's no. how he ends up <laughs> Boom we did it we did it Mr. Tarantino we have it. your 10th movie That would do one of two things right if you're a real fan and you just love Tarantino for what it is, that would blow your mind. But if you're one of those, like, these A24 vibes people who are, like, very, like, mm, no, that's just not how it would be, that would absolutely ruffle your <laughs> asshole. You know what I mean? You would just be so chatty. That's so, oh, it's so terrible. Fucking I would absolutely Pseudo-intellectual asshole. Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. Four-hour film of Kill Bill meets Inglorious Bastards. Suck on it big time. <laughs> Bam. In. Here's my money. Take my great. money. And you know what? We could do Esteban Viejo. We still have James Park, oh. his younger, his son, even though he's even though Earl McGraw is dead, but his son is not. Son number one's oh, alive, man. and he could play the young oh, Esteban. Man. I'm telling you, I got it all. <laughs> I just I just need to go see Tarantino. I'm going to pitch this to him. He can take the idea. I don't care. I don't need story credit. I just want to be part of that. So I sit there and watch. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But anyway, anyway, oh. yeah. that's 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 what I'm, that's what I think. Here's some fucking facts, Jack. As usual, this is the segment where I give you a little bit of nuggets of information that some of you may already know and some of you may not. I'm bringing you into the fold. We'll start with... Fucks given. How many uses of the word fuck are in this movie, Mr. Smith? Oh, man. I'll give you a hint. It's a surprisingly low number considering Tarantino's movies and considering the craziness of this movie. It's less than a hundred, yeah. Yes, you are correct. It is less than a hundred. I'm gonna, oh, I'm gonna pull a number out of my ass. I'm gonna say seventy-two. Not bad. Sixty. Ah, well. Sixty. That's not bad at all, because a lot of other words are thrown in. But when, you, if you really do listen to it, the, the, the f bomb is just not dropped as much. Even though you feel like it should mm. be dropped, you feel like every other word in this yeah, movie is about saying it is. It's being so, dropped. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you a chance to redeem yourself. Okay. Body count. Oh. There's a lot of people who have gone through and tried to count. And so, yeah, right, again, so. this is just a, a, an assumed number. I what I was able to find, and I wasn't going to go through the thing and sit there and count every single one like I have in some movies. Okay, so that depends because I know that they killed 52. They had 52 victims, but you don't obviously see them. Yeah, but you don't see them all. Yes, exactly. This final number, I don't know if they combined it or not. So, we'll so you've just... got to combine the 52 with everything in the prison sequence. Oh, yes. I, I can only say roughly the same as the, the F-bombs. I would think in the 70s. 145. We'll fucking double then. Yeah. I will reiterate this. This is through many sources I researched, and the number they came up with was 145. So don't send me messages about go fuck myself. All right? Maybe I should sit there and count them, but it's a lot. Like, that movie goes by so yeah. fast. So many things are happening. Like, counting the deaths is kind of... It's like counting how many people die in the opening scene of Saving yeah. Private Ryan. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I don't uh, yeah, know. Yeah. I don't know. It's a lot. Yeah. All the shit that does happen... Happened at the end at 145 scenes. Well, yeah, because right. I mean, like, obviously, because so actually, going I was on. thinking about Nikki and Mao, how many people they killed, not necessarily how many actually died. True. So obviously, you got all the Brit, all the all the convicts 
going ape, going ape <laughs> yeah. shit and fucking throwing <laughs> yeah. people off. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, that, that does sound. Yeah, probably sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ooh. Some bare feet sightings. Now we actually have some bare feet sightings in this film for the first one. True Romance did not have it. Now we talked on Reservoir Dogs. I said there were two of his films that he directed that didn't have it in it. That's Reservoir Dogs and The Hateful Eight. That doesn't mean that the other movies don't, but True Romance did not. However, we talked about it on that podcast that if Tarantino had directed, there's no doubt in my mind, Alabama's feet would have been shown at least once, but did not happen in that film with Tony Scott. But Oliver Stone does give us one. We get one sighting, and that is Mallory's when she is barefoot in the prison. She puts the cigarette out. Yes, with her feet. Yes. There's our barefoot sighting. I think I would beg to differ. I think there's a couple of sequences when she's in the... Do okay. Well, please uh, tell me when, we... when, uh, when they're in the car, got her feet up on the uh, dash. I'm pretty sure she had all her shoes on because they were running nah. away. But if I'm you wrong, I'm more than happy. If I'm wrong, I am more than willing to admit it. But from what I can remember, I thought there was just one. But if there is more, mm. please feel free to let me know on my socials. Yeah, maybe, feel free. Maybe. I have no problem but with I'm that. I'm gonna say, I'm sure when they're in the car, at some point, she's better. But maybe you don't see a feet in quite a pornographic way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're not in an, they're not in an extreme yeah. close up with really nice yeah, lighting exactly. on them. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's true. Yeah. Not not as much as usual. Next up the motherfucking Tarantino verse. Now, in this movie, we have two legitimate connections to the Tarantino verse, and one connection that I am kind of possibly alluding to. There's no concrete evidence, but we'll get into it. Number one. The first one is, as we said back in the podcast you and I were on, Detective Jack Scagnetti, played by Tom Sizemore, is believed to be the brother of the hated, although never seen, Seymour Scagnetti, who is Vic Vega's parole officer in Reservoir Dogs. That is the belief in the Tarantino verse. I'm sure there's people on here who are listening who will be up in arms about it. But hey, that's what we got. Those are definite things that I've heard. And the name Scagnetti was was used intentionally, as in like both the brothers kind of went their way in the law enforcement world. One is a homicidal detective. (laughs) (laughs) Who likes to wear a thong. A a very disturbing thong. Yeah. And then the other one's just a real piece of shit fucking... uh, Oh. Which, if you take if you take the two of them together, it sounds like well, they're brothers. They both sound like say, real pieces of shit. I was going to say, alternatively, maybe Jack Scagnetti started off as a parole officer, got maybe. himself in some trouble, and changed his name to Jack and became. Oh, so you see maybe more? That's well, the same it could. Guy. You never maybe know. He just reinvented. He never maybe know. hauled ass somewhere <laughs> else and became a celebrated nut job cop. <laughs> Who knows? But yeah, so you've got yeah, so you've got Scagnetti. Are there any other? Um... Not that not, Scagnetti's not been used no. since. Are there any other? Um, when we never see any Seymour other characters though within the movies. Yeah, within MBK. I'm gonna get to that. That's ah, that's sorry. the it's the possible okay. one that I'm gonna get to. Sorry. I talked about last uh, month with Petros, and that is that True Romance is the script from a Hollywood screenwriter who writes it while on the run from Mickey and Mallory from Natural Born Killers. Originally, this was one long movie of insanity, but thankfully they broke it down into two scripts. So technically, the movie True Romance is a romanticized version of Mickey and Mallory's life originally when it was put together, originally written. And then it was broken up, and now we get the two separate films, and definitely they break apart from each other 
there at that point. Right. Now, my possible one is the cop who is tortured, loses the ear in Reservoir Dogs, Mr. Marvin Nash. There is a cop who is killed by Mickey Mallory. His name is Gerald Nash. He was killed in Texas. There is no meeting that says the two are related, but it's a very happy circumstance that Tarantino named two cops in his movies, one Marvin Nash and one Gerald Nash. He wouldn't Nash. have done that by accident. No. I'm not saying they're brothers. They could be related in some sense. However, there has been nothing that I could find that says guarantee. The irony of that is the character Kirk Boltz, who plays Marvin Nash, is in Natural He's Born Killers. He is one of the cameramen for yeah. <laughs> for Robert Downey Jr.'s oh, yeah. character for, uh, what is it, American Maniacs. Maniacs. Um, yeah. 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 Great. Yeah. It's, it's a perfect show. <laughs> And those were the facts, Jack. And now the gospel, according to the almighty Tarantino. Chapter 3, Natural Born Killers. Now, Natural Born Killers, the third film, what ends up being four films from 92 to 94. Like, he got some movies put out there. Obviously, he directed two, and two got put out. The 90s were his body of work. He really had a lot of stuff come out. He had the three films that he wrote. He stars in one of them, which we'll get to in a couple months, which is from Dust Till Dawn. And he directs three. You know, you get Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown all directed. And you got True Romance, Natural Born Killers, and From Dust Till Dawn. All six of these films come out. From 92 to 97. And then we're not even talking about Four Rooms, which is like a little segment, which also is in there. So you've got six feature films and a short film. Seven total projects hit the screens in the 90s. And since then, he's done six in 20 years. It's crazy. He does three a decade. Like his output. And again, like I said, he directed three major films and then that one segment in Four Rooms. But he had three other movies that he wrote. And he stars in one with Robert Rodriguez, uh, you know, from Dust Till Dawn. And... It's just like he was pumping them out. But again, he was in his yeah. 30s. He was like, he was spry and doesn't felt matter. good. And then his, once it doesn't again, matter who you are. Life gets in the way, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. After that, he was like, all right. I mean, because once Jackie Brown hits the screen, it's six years before we see Kill Bill. Like, he took a long time before we saw Kill Bill, hit, yeah. you know, come out. Obviously, Kill Bill was the longest. Here's the crazy thing. Django and Chain is considered the longest movie shoot for a single film. Right. Technically, it really is Kill yeah. Bill. But because they broke up into two movies, yeah. you know, like it's 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 yeah, it's like that, mm. you know, yeah, it's like a technicality yeah, kind of yeah. thing. But yeah, his longest filming schedule was Kill Bill. It took him like damn near six months to film the whole thing. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's mm. a long time. Yeah. Most most films are done. I mean, his first film he did in thirty five yeah. days. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that's a that's a stretch yeah. from doing thirty five to suddenly you're doing yeah. six months. Yeah. But this movie is a, I want to say it's a shit show. You mean that, you mean that as a compliment? <laughs> I do. Rewatching it, I feel like there's a lot of it being a Tarantino film, but just on acid. It really feels like a Tarantino film on acid. Now, going back to rewatch it, I probably haven't seen it in two decades. Easily. It's been a long time since I saw this film. So what I had in my mind was similar to what I saw, but at the time, I would have been like, nah, that's not a Tarantino film. But as I've gone through, there's a lot of elements in that film that whether Tarantino remembers seeing them or whatever, but that, that Tarantino himself ended up using. They use rear projection and side projection like Tarantino does in mm-hmm. his films. I mean, even the same year, because this came out in August of 94, and Pulp Fiction would hit the screens in October of 94. Right. So in both movies, they have rear projection. Yeah. When they're doing the driving scenes, especially in the opening titles for Natural Killers, there's the rear projection. The opening scene itself has a moment in it that 
they go basically the opening scene is pretty much word for word of what is on the page that Tarantino wrote and how it's delivered is different but the knife they throw that Mickey throws at the redneck who was fixing his car out front because he's looking in and we follow the knife through the spin window. through and go through the window and, and hit him that's the axe that happens that's thrown in Kill Bill same exact kind mm-hmm. of thing Yeah. the guy throws the axe she catches it and then throws it back we follow that and yeah. hits him in the head there's stuff that happens I'm not saying it was like we're taking no. on each other, but just a little more hyper realistic than Tarantino would be in his movies. They even do it with the uh, with the in, NB, in NBK. They do it with the bull as well in the same sequence. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's kind of like obviously. Yeah, the yeah the bull hits the lady with the the t- and it's the thing is it's in the script like it's written that way. So they did pay some real service to what he wrote. Like, they didn't just change everything. Yeah. And obviously things are changing. They did the story a little different than he would have gone. But I did think, like, in that sequence, that that's kind of like um, Looney Tunes, you know? It's kind of like a cartoon, isn't it? But obviously that's deliberate. That's, well, again, that is, uh, it's also in black and yeah. white. Tarantino's gone black and white in a couple yeah. movies. It starts off black and white. And it is told out of sequence, just like Tarantino's movies yeah. are. Oliver Stone did keep a lot of what he saw in that script in, and while I know there's a, like, there's a scene in the script that was actually shot, but they didn't put it in the movie. There's these two twin bodybuilders. They kind of become friends with, and then eventually he like cuts their arms and legs off with a chainsaw. Like I think I've remembered yeah, the script, yeah. and I think it might have happened in the movie. Yeah, but... that, that's a, I think that's a deleted scene. I think that's a deleted scene. I think because them two brothers, um, they they had uh, they were, were they wrestlers or something. The Barbarian Brothers. They were something, but they, they did were, a film. Yeah, they they were did a in film. other movies. They did a film called The Barbarians or The Barbarian Brothers. Yes, I've seen that. They look like Italian guys who've over tanned and decided to go long. That's really moments. funny. You know, they're, like, of, they're in an eighties well, rock band. Setting, like these, like I don't know, fucking thousands of years ago. Yeah, they got these like Californian like dude accents. It's kind of a terrible film. That's yes, just, yes. It stayed with me, although I saw it about. That stayed with you. Although I saw <laughs> it probably about. Tonight. <laughs> 30 years ago. But yeah. But yeah, that whole sequence at the beginning is kind of like, you know what? This is the funny thing about it. It's, it's very Tarantino. It's in a yeah. diner. He's eating pie. Yeah. Music's played on a jukebox. Yeah. And then violence suddenly yeah. happens. And we have a strong female character in Mallory as she fucks that Big dude top. up. And then Mickey cuts the guy's finger off because he's like, just because you're my wife's whooping your friend's ass, you don't need to jump yeah. in. It just goes haywire from there. And then even the violence is kind of accentuated, like you said. Like the one bullet when they shoot the lady, the fry cook comes out with like the pan or the meat cleaver. She takes it to the head. And then they do the count. They do the eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Who gets to yeah, live? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Catch the redneck by his toe. And she's holding, and she's holding the kettle up in front of her face. She Yes, and then she shoots through that. And like in two months later, you get the eeny, meeny, miny, mo scene in Pulp Fiction down in the basement when Zed decides who they're going to pick. Which I won't get no, into no, that now because no, I'll hold it for next month. But I have a little uh, a problem with that. Someone cheated, but we'll get into that <laughs> in a yeah. month. You know, like I said to you when you mentioned joining you to do the NBK one, I was a bit like, I don't know about this one. Um, <laughs> but I watched it yesterday, yeah. And I've never enjoyed it more. It's, it's aged extremely well. Yes. And another thing, I don't really like all of the stuff. I'm not a fan. He had some interesting movies in the 90s. Uh, I think after this movie, he did U-Turn, which is I love right. U-Turn. See, I don't. But what I was going to say, I mean, I think I think JFK is a masterpiece. I think we may have had that conversation either on or yeah. off air. Yeah, I, I, think I agree JFK is a masterpiece. He wrote um, Scarface, which I absolutely love. You know, it's a bit patchy with him. I'm not really a fan of all the stone. So I was a bit like, I don't, I remember not really thinking much of NBK. But watching it yesterday, it's aged extremely well. And I had a damn good time with it, you know. Well, it was one of the things I was going to bring up. But we can bring it up now. I was going to bring it up at the end. But it, there's almost genius foresight 
of him to see the rising storm of what was to become of the way our world currently is, where stardom is a lot of the times is infamous and notorious and how much people want to see themselves and want to become stars and be on, well, TV at the time, but now it's YouTube. Like, there's a lot of premonition in this Absolutely. film of what would happen 20-plus years later that when you're watching the film, I mean, this is, the, the internet has just begun. This is this is pre-internet yeah. days. Yeah, really. yeah. YouTube is 13 years away. YouTube comes out in 07. YouTube is a long way away. But we are starting to get some reality, like it's almost like the dawn of like reality TV too. Like we've got the cop shows and these investigative shows, but eventually it's giving way to personalities like this. Like we would follow Mickey and Mallory in modern day now. Yeah. Like it would be a thing that they would want to do. It's or it would be definitely one of those weird um, documentaries that we would find, like like a Tiger King type of thing. Like like they are the original dawn of what is coming yeah. down the road. That you just like it's yeah. crazy that we didn't and see. And sort of commenting on the sort of the bloodlust. The view, uh, of America. The, well, well, just the view. Well, no, no, honestly, because I mean, no, no one does violence like America. <laughs> like we love violence. We yeah. just do. I've watched plenty of your British crime films, and they're more talky, more cerebral. Mm. American crime films are like it's like fucking Goodfellas and stuff. Like, like we're gonna take your fucking eyes out for shit. Yeah, like it's yeah. crazy. Like we'll kill everything. Yeah. We won't show but tits. Also, we won't show also, ass. Yeah, I know. But also with the true crime stuff being so popular now as well. And Netflix, and even Netflix are in on it with the doc. I just watched one the other night about uh, New York, uh, Times Time Square. Was it Times Square? The fucking the torso killer or something. He chopped these women up. Oh, fuck me, man. <laughs> Jesus. I'm I know. I'm thinking, Welcome to America. This is depressing. This is some depressing shit. Well, the crazy thing is, is you go back and you watch Natural Born Killers, and in my mind, I remember how visceral and crazy it was. You know, the violence was super unreal. The two characters were just crazy as fuck. Uh, Juliette Lewis does an amazing job. It's so crazy to see her in this movie, and three years later, she's in From Dust Till Dawn, and it's two different people. And actually, four years earlier, she's the daughter in Christmas Vacation, and you're kind of like, like, she does such jumps. She's such an amazing... In California. Yeah, yeah, she's the daughter in... Um, Kate yeah, she has such great different roles. She goes from like this psycho to like this girl next door, and you're like, how does she you know, do these flips? And now you're looking at it, then and you're like, oh my god, this is insane. But now it doesn't feel as crazy because of the way the world has come, and it's almost like it's almost like someone came back in time and they handed Tarantino a script, but they said, shoot it this way. Trust us, it's going to look a lot like this in the yeah. future. They may not understand it now, but 30 years from now, it is going to feel like a modern day tale that would make the theme. Yeah, but that's where I'll give Oliver Stone. He's very, you know, he's an intelligent man, you know, um, and that, that sort of foresight is obviously what he yes. brought to it, you know. He's a lot like Tarantino. He has balls. He doesn't care. You know, like he's like a Kubrick. Whether you like him or not, he will take chances. He's willing for his films to fail, to put out what he wants to put out. And this was a real stretch. He's a vision. Well, well, obviously guy's a visionary, you know what I mean? Exactly, but think about this. Think about the movies up until this. What a stretch it is for him to, like, even though JFK is like this, <laughs> I almost want to say ground zero for conspiracy theories that have come no, out now. Like, he's the like the ground zero for a lot of things, isn't he? Like, he's like, he started a lot of mm. things in the 90s. But, like, if you go back to Platoon or even to Born on the Fourth of July, like, you go back to these films, they have a statement to make, but they don't go out of bounds. You know, they don't go crazy. This film, if I were to sit people down and say, all right, we're going to do movies and we're going to watch three of them and I put three on and I put this one on last. I said, so which one did Oliver Stone not do? And even though they're all Oliver Stone, I just get rid of the titles. People would probably go, he definitely didn't do that one because that doesn't feel like any of the other films he's done. You know, like it's a, a combination of Tarantino's script but also just him being like seeing what Tarantino wrote and then seeing a new vision for it that even Tarantino didn't see. Yeah. Which I give him credit for. You know, I know that Quentin sometimes doesn't like it. Well, uh, you know, I mean, NBK 
showcased very sort of um, very youthful punk rock movie. So yeah, Absolutely. just think that Oliver Stone made that, you know. I, I know. Am I assuming right that this is post Born on the Fourth of July and Platoon? Yeah, of course it is. Well, if you look at his, you know, those movies, those are anti-war movies the whole mm. time. Even though Platoon's about his time over there, and then Born on the Fourth of July, he finds a guy who's so American, mm. you know, shits the flag, then suddenly goes over there and then sees what you know capitalism and what the war machine's really like, and he comes back and he's like, "Fuck the flag," kind of, you know, like it's a complete one eighty for a character yeah. to have to go from being, you know, GI Joe to fuck yeah. this shit. Yeah. But this one, he has a it's, a it's a social commentary of where America is kind of headed. Yeah, at the not time. not where America was, where it was. Going. Yeah, 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 and and we fucking went there, you know. Even we even surpassed what Nedgeborn Killers is, you know. Like it's it's insane. It's truly it's remarkable that we got this far. Yeah, and that opening diner scene is it kind of starts it, and then from that opening diner scene to the surreal opening credits, where they're just kind of driving around and people riding up on them, and it's obviously on a soundstage and doing projection oh, on the incredible. wall, which is amazing, it's unreal. Like so, sometimes I wonder why. If Tarantino hasn't gone back, I would love to ask him this question. Like, I know that he sees his writing as his baby. I mean, just for Stone to see a different vision from the same material and kind of still bring it to life, similar to a Tarantino, but, like, almost inject, like, pure acid or meth in this fucking movie because it is just all over the place. Well, you know, even um, there's, like, a collage of music as well playing over the... Um, oh, yeah. It's a great you soundtrack. you got Leader of the Pack in there. You've got some Dwayne. you got yeah. some Dwayne. Oh, it's a great... you got like Dwayne yeah. Eddy and Patty Smith and just this... Oh, it's just fucking incredible. So funny thing about that. I was listening to that the other day, the uh, Patty Smith. I, I have a little Tarantino playlist that I take everything from the movies. And I, I made one long playlist and I just hit on shuffle. So I'm riding in the car with my kids and Patty Smith's song comes on. And of course, because it's on my iTunes, across my CarPlay, it has the name and it's Rock and Roll N Word. And my kids are like, what? and I'm like, I'm like, look, uh, it's from a movie. Yeah, yeah. It's a great song. You have to listen to it. Like it, it doesn't mean what you think it means. Like there's a lot of a lot of subtext in there. But like if you just see this across my dashboard, like it's like this has become a clan meeting suddenly. <laughs> like that. I'm like, no, listen to this. Like it's a really fast hard forward, edge song. Fast, you know, that fast forward. But such a great oh, song. No, you know incredible. what I mean? You're just like, if no one knows, you see that come across oh, your screen. You're like, oh shit, I've got some explaining to do. Yeah, you're like, oh, okay. I, I did. I had to literally explain this. And I don't think it worked. I don't think, I still think they think like I'm some. Yeah. But, but I'm like, hey, it's a great song by Patti Smith. You talked to Patti Smith. I didn't write the fucking lyrics. That, it's just an amazing credit, like you say, an amazing credit scene. It was that collage of music, all the stock footage, and the, you know... Loved it. Uh, And and it was in color, so it was different than what Tarantino does. It doesn't black But it was gorgeous. Like, it was... ah, It's such a stunning scene. I mean, you go from that diner sequence to that credit sequence... Actually, you've got two credit sequences. So at the very beginning, you've got you've got the credit sequence, which is the Leonard Cohen song. Then it takes you to the diner, and then you've got the other credit sequence. So you go from the actual credits to like their own credits or something like that. This is our movie type vibe going on. Yeah, and then we get the I Love Mallory TV parody. Rodney Dangerfield. Oh my God, it's like a pedophile version of, and because at the time of Married with Children, which is what they were totally going for. Or what if Al Bundy was this real piece of shit and an amazing performance from him. Rodney Dangerfield is amazing in that film. He didn't want to be a part of this. He like had a tough time doing these mm. scenes because it's not him. That being said. Does he not nail the creepiness and then the little laugh track with it and then how like, they take these dark moments and then the mom will say something stupid and everyone will laugh and the brother's wearing kiss makeup? Like, it's so bizarre, but yet so... Well, that's the underbelly, isn't it, of the oh, American family, you know, it, the American 
nuclear yes. family and like that kind of um and I, a bit, I, I occasionally like shift to like really sinister shots of him yes and him grabbing her ass which he didn't do no I'm, he had no. someone else do it he couldn't do it. yeah he said he couldn't do it. like i read a thing on him he like he couldn't do it like he just he didn't have it in him and i don't even think it's her ass i i forget who it is but it's you know it's someone else when he grabs the ass i mean the way like even the food's coming out of his teeth and talking and and he's got the stain nah, it's just really oh, sleazy so fucking greasy and like you know, it's like I'm gonna. Rodney Dangerfield fucking kills oh, absolutely. it. Absolutely kills it in that in that moment. You know, um, oh, just really great. sinister. <laughs> His lines in it though, there's some funny shit. Oh, they're fantastic. Wait till I get my hands on that meat man and all that. Yeah, he, oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, like he says great lines, and yet also right after he's just said something like horrific, like get upstairs and you make sure you're real clean. <laughs> I'm gonna come and up then also and say something clean, else. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh God, it's horrific. And then, and then she's like, "Oh, Ed." And then the mom's like, "Oh, yeah. Ed." <laughs> Just, <laughs> I need to have a word with my husband, you know, and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so you you have got that like juxtaposition uh, of like how oh, things are so and how good. they're shown and. Uh, that is yes. that is an incredible yes how we've sanitized how the American family is with these funny shows but in reality like a guy who's selling just shoes and has this kind of family the reality would be like I don't think Al Bundy's as nice as we think he is he's got a dark because in the 80s and 90s again I don't know how many of our shows permeated over to there but it's all these like family shows and these you know family units and, yeah. and they're all like oh everything's great but in reality it's like Mm-mm. it really is not this just shiny obviously it's a comment on sort of being a product of that as well you know you see why Mallory's so screwed up well you know I think if we actually kind of build a bridge if we look back even in the movie Once Upon a Time it's what Manson's followers are saying in that car about they grew up watching these people on TV kill people like he has a social commentary about the shows he watched in the 50s and 60s growing up. Now here we are having a similar commentary that I don't think was in his script, but I think that like even at the time, Oliver Stone is saying about here's these 80s, 90s shows you're watching and it all seems like, you know, a very homogenized version of what America is, but the real truth about what America is, it's it's a lot closer in a lot of people's relationship to what's happening in Mallory's life and then it is in what's happening in, you know, Silver Spoons or, you know, The Cosby Show. Yeah. But you know, because like, how about how about that for an no, irony? Yeah. How about Jesus that for Christ. an irony? No way could he have that's known. A, what, how about that? Twenty plus story. years later, Mister Huxtable is a fucking but, fucking but yeah, when, um, He's a but rapist. When the dad's watching TV and he's like, he says like, "Kill the fucking Indian," and he's being really homophobic as well. And you're just like, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. just real piece of shit, you know. <laughs> but it's fucking hilarious. He's just, and you know, when Mickey, he's sitting there yelling at a wrestling. Which when does this yeah, make yeah, and like, um, he's like, kill, kill the that fucking. And being really, being really uh, homophobic, yeah, and, like, yeah. and you know, like when Mickey, you know, when Mickey shows up with the as the meat man, and, <laughs> and it's almost yes. quite sleazy. You know, they're flirting with each other as well because he's like, "Do you like me?" Because uh, he's like, "Do you like me?" Yeah. And she's like, "I might do." And, you know, it's just like this oh, is, it's well, it's so just it's like it's this so grotesque great. version of everyday TV, but... Absolutely. You know, obviously, it's a, a satirical look, but it really is what the, you know, family life in certain parts of this country, I, again, I won't speak on other countries, but especially in America, it really, at the time, even if people didn't realize it, but like, obviously, as time has gone, we've seen it. Like, you, you've you seen the shows, like the Honey Boo was like, like, you see all these shows that come out and you start going, <laughs> I Love Mallory is like, uh, fucking spot yeah. on at some point. It's like, Jesus. Yeah, just, uh, just totally ahead of his time in that, in that regard, you know. I, this is going to sound 
was like, I would totally love to see that show on like Netflix. Like, I know it's dark and satirical. That was just genius. That was just pure genius moment for them to turn that moment into a, that. Yeah, it's a parody. That it's a parody, but we're knowing that's really. It's almost like a break of reality for Mallory. This is how she sees herself. Her life. She sees it as a, as a TV yeah. show. That's how she survived. Yeah. This is the character having a break with reality in order to survive the situation she currently is. She sees herself as being in yeah, a sitcom. Yeah, and obviously what, what cements their relationship is the murders, you know. It's a relationship born out of blood, you know. Yeah, yeah born out it's of, just... yes. It's crazy. When he gets out of prison and murders him, when they murder him together, and then sets the mom on fire, like, it's just a whole crazy sequence. That's when we get another TV show that is not so far off, and that's when we get Wayne Gale with the great Robert, maybe Robert Downey Jr.'s best performance ever. He was still Robert Downey Jr. doing cocaine. I'm not sure he was acting. I know. I know. There's a, it's more meta acting. <laughs> Looks coked out of his mind. He has. He starts the show, or at least his part in the movie, looking like he was the lead singer from um, Tears for Fears, <laughs> or uh, or even in excess. He had this '80s, you know, his lead well, singer. Well, I was going to say that, that, not to get away from it, but that everyone's got like this bouffant hair, like Skagnetti. Awful hair. Skagnetti. Yeah, everyone's got horrible got hair. Fucking cartoon. <laughs> yep. is, like. Boo- on air, but and pencil moustaches. But just before it cuts to American Maniacs, obviously you see um, you see Mickey escaping from prison on the horse, and he's just riding into the tornado. Oh, I'm glad you yeah. brought that up. If you watched it, you saw a convict fall and get trampled mm. by a horse. That was a stunt man. That really happened. He was okay. They kept it in the film. That was not planned. That was pure accident. The stuntman fell. The horse ran him over. He survived it, uh, and the they kept it in people, the film. Like that was total yeah, the, accident. The things people do for art. But yeah, like you say, then it goes. Yeah, so after they they do the killings and it cuts to American Maniac. Oh, he comes on screen. Yeah, then you've got that. Um, Even the opening where he's, he's barely coherent though. I could. I could. I could. Well, the funny thing is, is oh, he's got the Australian accent. He he brings that back in Tropic Thunder. He's got the hair. He is so coked out. He's like combining. There was a talk show at the time. I can't think of it. He was very loud too, but he's like took Geraldo Rivera oh, and this guy. He combined them together. You, you know who I'm talking about? I can't think of his name, but he was always yeah. loud. But I love that he, in the opening credits for that show, he's like standing there with like the SWAT teams and he's kicking the door open like he's a cop himself. <laughs> yeah. And then like the one guy's getting arrested, he's like fighting with him. It's just fucking ridiculous. <laughs> this shit. He is so fucking good in this movie. Like him and Tommy Lee Jones, they are so fucking good. They're so bad, so crazy. They're so anti-cast of who they yeah. are. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones he is really chewing the scenery way. big time. He's fucking oh, been going phenomenal. for phenomenal. He's going. Uh, he's going oh, crazy. That is fucking hilarious. I just love how angry though. Even in the interviews, that what's his name tries to get that. Later, but, we'll he doesn't, but he doesn't. But he doesn't mean any of it. When he eventually he? gets the gun, yeah. he but he doesn't mean any of it because when he does, he's like he I just know. looks away. At, he looks away at the cameraman and sort of winks as if to say, "Yeah, I'm reeling him in." He's got no. He's yeah. totally insincere. You know, know. He's a, so good, that. though. He's so fucking good. He was the highlight. Like, I forgot how good he was in it. Because, uh, you know, he has that moment in life. And then, like, after that, he really gets in some deep trouble in the late 90s. And then he's reborn in Iron Man and then in Sherlock Holmes. Absolutely. I still love him better in Sherlock Holmes than I do in Iron Man. I think he's phenomenal, Sherlock Holmes. Agree. Agree. I really hope they make a third. Here's something for you. I only noticed this last night when I rewatched it. Talking about Sherlock Holmes, when they're doing the editing for the American Maniac show, and, you know, you've got all the kids saying, oh, I'd want to be Mickey and Mallory, and they're the best thing that happened. Yes, best thing that happened that, yeah. in mass murder since Manson. It, it cuts to two yeah. English people. It cuts to a 
heavy metal guy. Yes. The, well, yep. I don't know if you know this, but the but the British guy yep. is uh, Jared Harris, who, yep. who plays Moriarty in the second Sherlock Holmes. Yes. I'm not sure I knew what's it again. No, when I saw it, I know who the fuck he was. Because if you look at him again, you go, that's Jared well, Harris? Because like, he Rich, looks so That's different. Richard Harris's son, isn't it? You know, fucking... He's phenomenal as Moriarty. Yeah. Phen- no, I mean, I know he's a great actor. Yeah, no, he's a great actor. Phenomenal. He's a great actor. But no, no, I just never, I never noticed that. It's like we won't talk about it now, but in uh, a character in the beginning of From Dust Till Dawn, you're like, holy shit! Like this guy's going on to become an, an Academy Award nominated guy, and here he's playing this fucking redneck, long-haired crackpot yeah. working behind, uh, yeah, a hawk. Uh, so you're like, holy shit! He's in the movie. It's crazy. One. Fantastic. Yeah. Exactly. But you're like, you look back at some of these movies, you go, oh my god! Like, I mean, technically, Brad Pitt in True Romance. No one knew where Brad Pitt was going to go from there, you know. Come on, he, he fucking he literally steals the fucking movie. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the great thing about these uh, Tarantino scripts is the the, just the, the characters who are who are extras. They they don't just they're just not there, you know, fill in the background. They really do have moments. You're like, God damn, like, like you may have been on screen for four seconds, but man, you made the most of those four there seconds. He goes. He's- so. Classic. But Robert Downey Jr. in American Maniacs, <laughs> I fucking, I forgot how much I loved it. Like, I was like, I need to watch this. Like, this is, this part is just genius. Like, the more I watched it, the more I really started to re-like the movie. Because I, too, like you, I was like, all right, I'm going to do this movie. I know that it's really the movie that, by the time people listen to this, I'll be two months in. This will be the third full right. episode but I've already done this while I'm recording this. A month and a half I've been building. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of stuff on social media and building things. And the one movie that doesn't get talked about hardly by any Tarantino fans as to date prior to, obviously, this is three months before you're going to hear this, is mm. Nurse Born Killers. Like, it almost like true romance is a romanticized, as it mm. should be, as we, I talked about in the last episode. Obviously, From Dust to Dawn gets a lot of play because Robert Rodriguez directed it, Quentin wrote, and stars in it with George Clooney. It does a huge pivot. We'll talk about that yeah. in two months. Nurse Born Killers is almost like that step child, you're like, ah, I really fucking hate that kid. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even want to, don't even want him coming over to the house. Fuck this guy. Yeah. But it's going back and revisiting it because I think a lot of it is, is hurt by Tarantino saying he didn't like it. And then the, the only reason he made amends with it is they allowed him to publish the original screenplay. <clears throat> but if you go back and look at it, as much as I gushed over how much I thought Tony Scott did a great job and how it's a, com- like, again, I'll say the same with him. It's a completely different movie than anything else Tony Scott had in True Romance. There's no other movie in Tony Scott's filmography that is like True Romance. Doesn't have as good writing, as good of characters. It, like, he has good movies, don't get me wrong. But if you go and watch them on the the true romance, you go, this is not Tony Scott's movie. He directed an amazing um, rendition of Tarantino's script. Agreed, and I feel yeah. similar to Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone took what Tarantino had wrote and then did something with it that made it his own. Where I felt like Tony Scott was directing a Tarantino movie, I feel like Oliver Stone directed a different Oliver Stone movie, but it has a lot. There's a lot of greatness in it that has been completely forgotten over time because it just get, it gets lost in the pantheon of, of Tarantino's stuff. You know what? I haven't seen true romance in a long time and i'm almost scared to watch it again oh it's well, beautiful I, I, I it's gorgeous because I'm, I'm just almost a bit like nervous that i'm gonna not like it now oh you're gonna no, love I'm it because <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> yeah, i just yeah. got the um arrow and 4k so i'm i'm very much looking forward. yeah i'm very much excited I, i'm just held off watching it because i'm like 
If I don't like it as much as I used to, I'm going to feel fucking destroyed because I loved that film back in the day. I'm sure I'll love it. I thought I was going to watch this and be like, oof, this is going to be the episode that fucking derails everything. um, But some people may or may not even listen to this because it's Natural Born Killers, which I hope they do. And I hope the people who are listening did because either they loved it or they weren't sure how we'd feel about it. But if you go back and watch it, which currently, again, I don't know if it's still going to be there, but right now, right before we get into 2022, it's streaming in America on HBO Max. I don't know if it'll still be at this time. This is the thing. I watched it on Amazon Prime, yeah? It's literally the only Tarantino movie or, you know, adjacent movie that I haven't brought. But actually, I think I might. After watching it last night, I thought, I want that in my collection. You're 100% right. I think I have all 11 but his. Yeah, yeah. But I think I will buy this one. That just surprised me how how well it's aged, how anarchic, funny, violent, inventive. Oh, it's hilarious. Very inventive. And I think it's better now than it was back then because of how much it, like, it doesn't seem as crazy now as it did back then. Like, it's so, you know, you're like, oh. This is this is like the real world we currently live in right now. It's fucking insane. But there you go, I man. It just goes to show that we've only really talked up to American maniacs. There's just so much going on. Well, yeah, that's why I only picked a few things because there's. I mean, because this movie is. If you go through so, the whole I mean, movie, is, there's so much you, going oh, on. It's an acid trip. It's a fucking yeah. acid trip. Which gives us to the insane arrest of Mickey and Mallory after the. I won't even get into the whole scene with the Indian because I think it's one of the best scenes in the film. It, it's so poignant and it, it tells everything you need to know really about them and what's coming. But they get bit by snakes. Well, they are. And they're high on mushrooms anyway. It's a fucking cocktail of death. I, how they're even alive is insane in the first place. But they're in this almost Walmart sized drugstore. A total commentary on the prescription drug industry in this country alone, and it's in 93, 94, this comes out that they're talking about it, and it's only gotten worse. This is before oxycodone even has hit American shelves. And so these guys are trying to get snake juice, and of course it's all out. And it's all lit. And it's all lit in like that green. Green. Oh, it's awful lighting. Oh, it makes you feel sick. Well, it's obviously like poison, like connotation of like poison. Oh, absolutely. um, It makes you as the viewer feel... Similar to what the characters feel, because I felt myself sick, you know, because because it's on screen yeah. for so long. It's not like in Tarantino, like it goes black and white, and then all over yeah. back to color. It's green, the fucking neon until we get neon. outside. But just before that, just to mention, with the native Indian guy, that's where you do at least see some hints of um, Mickey's background as well. Great hints yeah, of Mickey's background. You know, with his yeah. abusive father and mother and stuff as well. His abusive stepdad. So, well, yeah, his yeah. Mom, so I mean, you really know, shitty too. obviously we had we had Mallory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do feel a little bit like, well, who is you know who is Mickey then? Mickey. And why is he wired this way? You know. Yeah, it's sad. His is tragic. Not that hers isn't, but his is like... But yeah, but that's what, what connects them is the shared abuse, that you know. Shared trauma, but yeah, absolutely. But, but to go do. back to the, obviously, the uh, uh, the drugstore scene, and you guess where you get the animation as well. Yes. Oh, I forgot to mention that too. That's oh, another, almost like uh, you know, a, before Tarantino would even put like it in. Uh, Terry Gilliam style. You know, like Monty Python. Yes, it's, it's not Japanese anime, but yeah, it's definitely that. Just for some reason, yeah, it's definitely that nineties yeah, yeah, feel. Yeah, yeah, no, like, yeah, Terry Gilliam and that Monty Python stuff, and then and obviously the guy, the clerk behind the counter. You know, he's he's actually watching, <laughs> he's actually watching American Maniacs. <laughs> <laughs> and there they are, and they're fucking in the store. <laughs> You know, and he's like, you can't yeah. leave someone alive, you know, and all that. that that's, just, that's comical. Yeah, and then he's like, what if I don't kill you? There's no yeah. story to tell. Exactly. <laughs> so great. So good. And that's where we get... Um... Well, Scagnetti, we learn about a little bit, too. His... Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> the scene of him with the Lady of the Night, and he's wearing those red nut hugger G-strings. <laughs> but just like, before oh that, God. there's a funny bit. Uh, so there's a bad. funny bit just before that where... Um, 
Mallory has gone out for a drive and she's fucked the guy at the gas station. Well, yeah, she's going to, and he, yeah, and he <laughs> he's, just... not, he's not doing a good job of the old. Uh... No, worse. She, she kills him. That's the worst that <laughs> yeah. I've ever gotten. <laughs> Next time, don't be in such there a fucking go. rush. And I think it's hilarious because yeah. he's dead. Like, he's, like, but, he's not going to be in a rush at Jack all. Stagnetti shows up and he fucking grabs her underwear and sniffs it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then he and then he sees some of her juices on the hood of the car, and then he looks like that's an ass or something. Jesus. You're like, oh this boy, guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. You <laughs> sadly, <laughs> sadly, sadly, this is not a political commentary, but he definitely, um, he definitely is a cop of uh, of modern day now. You know, he just go, yep, he's he's the he's the person we all think about when we think about the dirty job. Cop. May have gotten to him just a tad, a hair, <laughs> just a hair. That's what he does to that poor stripper. Like it's like he's got the scratch marks down his face either side as well. I love the fact that again, it's a commentary without people without having to say a word. Yeah, yeah. Right. So obviously, Oliver Stone knows. I mean, this is also in a time in America where I mean, just post the Rodney King riots in L.A. Mm-hmm. We've had the whole thing. So, so it's the first time that America has been confronted with actual video evidence of police brutality towards black right. people. It's something we probably all yeah. knew. I was young. At that time, I had no real reference for this. You know what I mean? Like, when I was in high school that it happened, the Rodney King stuff. So, up until that point, just a young white male in America, living the young white male in America dream, not realizing that policing and the way people are treated is completely different. It hasn't hit my radar yet. You know, I haven't had it put in my face. I've been completely insulated from it, just from where I grew up. Not like my parents insulated me from it, but again, they're there was none of this in your face unless you lived in the city. Right. It wasn't on TV. We don't have what we have now. There's not a phone in everyone's hand. There's not body cameras. This was captured on a camera, security camera at the gas station. It wasn't even like the dashboard no. cam. This was caught completely by pure coincidence and accident. Yeah. You know? So we're in this post scene of, of this, just a couple years removed. Basically, Oliver Stone is making a social commentary on policing in America, especially when they're white. This guy shows up to the arrest. Two days earlier, he shows up to the, the scene. Nothing wrong with him. He shows up to this arrest of Mickey Mallory. He has got like Wolverine-sized like claw yeah. marks down his looks face. Like been and no good, one yeah. says a fucking thing. It's almost like we're pretty sure he's a scumbag, but he's one of our scumbags. So we're going to protect him. We're not going to say a fucking thing. Yeah, and then Mickey gets fucking Rodney King. Oh, absolutely. And again, completely intentional. Yeah. That is literally um, almost yeah, yeah, scene is. by scene recreation of Rodney King getting kicked and beaten yeah. with sticks. It's not 100% on, but man, if you put the two side by side and all of that is done and it's okay and it slid by the American psyche because it was white on white. They did. They were like, oh yeah, it's fine. He's, you know, They didn't notice what he was saying. But just before that, Scagnetti cuts Mallory's breast. With a knife. So he's, yep. man, the man's yes. got issues. Well, I think I was also saying that the level that police work in America has been allowed to get to has almost become even more extreme than anything criminals can do. Literally, it's criminals policing criminals. Wolves going after wolves, which I know there's a level that you need, but there's no restraint. Like, you know what I mean? The, the cops are supposed to have the restraint. That's what's supposed to separate mm. them from the people they're yeah. after. And in this movie, he shows that line, especially out in California and stuff, has completely mm. disappeared. And that's in the early yeah. 90s. Yeah. 30 years before the stuff that, that's coming down the road. Like, obviously, it's always been happening, but we're finally starting to see it. And it's stunning that how far you think you've come, but you yeah, really yeah. haven't. It's, we're still... This movie could have been done today. You just need to change a few things in it 
with um, some cell phones and stuff, and it's completely different. But it's the same movie. This movie could not be made today in a way. No, no. People would be up in arms about how it's, oh, it's left-wing propaganda, right-wing. Uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. But oh, no, yeah. it's the biggest mirror turned down America, and it was 30 yeah. years ago. Like it, And you don't realize it because, you know, you're going on this ride of this craziness, and it's all oversaturated, and you're inundated with images and shit going on. But at the end of the day, if you stop scene by scene and start to look at it, especially with, you know, if you're from our generation and you live this stuff and now you look mm. back and go, oh my God, like, holy shit, where do we really go to? Like, we really, like, you know, you're back then going, oh, this is crazy. And now you're like, it doesn't seem nearly as crazy as everything that's <laughs> no, happening. But, but, you know, you're kind of like, holy shit, this is really tame. But back then, it, it was, um, it was a very controversial movie, you know, at, at the time. Especially for its violence. Yeah, and it, I, I don't know about how, how it was um, received in the States, but it was one of them films in the UK back at that, in that era, right? You always knew a film was pretty good when you could go into stores and buy posters for the film. They weren't even really official posters. Do you know, I know what, what I mean? You mean? Yep. No, I know what and you mean. And yeah. you had the, you had the natural killer's mugshot poster of Mickey and Mallory, and you could tell it was it was really uh, it's it's always the controversial stuff that obviously connects. Obviously, again, this predates everything. We've got social media, so if you had buzz prior to a movie coming out, that meant that that movie probably had something going on because people had either pre-seen it or the movie companies knew they had something special and they knew that this was going to land somewhere, and so you would start seeing this stuff, and it was like a, almost like a buzz, like people were telling yeah, you, you, go, you can't you see go. this. Yeah. You know well, what I mean? And you're like, you oh, had, then, the, then you knew yeah, that you, saw, was... you, you had the Tarantino connection, of course. But I think it, it's the it's the film that um, it pretty much launched Woody Harrelson as a leading man as well. Absolutely. Because he was only, it only done, I think it only done like a decent proposal. Well, it was, he broke away from his character from Cheers. He was able to finally separate himself from Wo- the goofy... Was he called Woody Cheers or what? I think he was. Oh, what was his name? Now, now I can't remember. Now but yeah, I think he was Woody in Cheers. It, but he's in Cheers, and he's just that dim-witted, you know, bartender who's always getting conned. Yeah, and yeah. He's just like you know, dumb, and you know, and he's the butt of all jokes. And now he's out here murdering people. But in Cheers, the the ironic thing was he had the really hot, rich girlfriend, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But yeah, you know, so so at the time, I, I just remember um, NBK being a, a hot topic, you know, and a kind of a big deal. And because um, uh, there is a difference between the theatrical and director's cut, obviously there, there is a difference anyway, but it was, I think it was mainly violence that was cut out. It's weird because in the reverse, for True Romance, for me, the only one I have and will watch is the director's mm. cut. But in Natural One Killers, I can't remember the, the director's cut. And I know what I saw on HBO Max was, I think, the theatrical yeah. release. I don't know that I've seen the director's cut in in a while or if ever. In the director's cut, um, Tommy Lee Jones' character gets beheaded and they're carrying his head around on a spike. You know what? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I yep, I remember that now. Oh, God. He's so good. <laughs> <laughs> that head on a spike has got to be the funniest head on a spike you've ever well, it's seen. Just a crazy fun. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so when I thought about the film and re-watching it again, I was hesitant, but then the pace of it and the visuals... It's under two hours. It moves quick. Well, you know, that's why I prefer, I prefer people who can tell a story in two hours than someone hired by Netflix to drag something out for fucking yeah, I know. two years. Well, he builds it early. I think, like, he builds the whole... Like, we get a whole lot of information early on until their arrest, and then we jump a year, and we spend, like, I would say the last third of the movie is on the interview, which then leads to the prison break. Right. And that slows down, but it's good because we, we've got all this hyper-realism and craziness going on, and also we slow it down. They're behind bars, and then it's like he lights a fuse, and it slowly burns until we get to the end. And we know something 
something's going to happen. We just don't know how or when. It all starts with, I mean, obviously, Scagnetti comes over a year. He goes to meet McCluskey. We get to see Tommy Lee Jones. From everything we thought about Scagnetti, the minute he meets Tommy Lee Jones, you're like, holy shit. Like, this has completely been worth the wait to get to Tommy. And he completely steals the scene. And then, at the same time, meanwhile, Gail is trying to get uh, Mickey to agree to uh, an interview. And, of course, like... During the Super Bowl. It's genius. Right after the Super Bowl, like, it's genius. Like, it's exactly, it's exactly America. It's like, we just got done watching people beat the shit out of each other on a field, and now we're drunk, and we're full of wings, and now we're going to watch an interview with a killer, Ooh. because it's what we do in America. We love it. If it was an interview with a porn star, we couldn't because of sex and stuff, but as long as it's violence in America, you get the grade A approval, you get an eagle stamp, and a flag is flown over in your in your name, and we love violence, but yeah. sex, we're very repressed. We're still very Puritan as it comes to our sex over here. I feel bad for Jack Scagnetti in this scene because when McCluskey and Gale finally are talking again, it's two people getting to play two characters. One, I think he's still living. Like, I think Wayne Gale is the Australian version of Robert Downey Jr. at that time in his life. And Tommy Lee's getting to play this character in McCluskey that is so fucking far out in left field that he is just absolutely enjoying every single moment of it. And the two of them, when they're talking, is just brilliant. And I feel feel bad because Sizemore is just kind of standing there being like, like, like he can't compete. You know what I mean? Because he's just this aggressive yeah. cop who's lost his mind, who really just wants to fuck and then kill Mallory Knox. That's his whole hope. But these two are just chewing up the scene because they're fucking insane. It's just so good. But also, you talk about um, Robert Downey Jr. being not too dissimilar from his Gale character. Well, Tom Sizemore, where is a fucking <laughs> I know, bag, I know. The only person doing any acting in that movie is Tommy Lee Jones at that point. Those George, they're just like, hey, just just be you. You use an accent. You wear a thong. We're good to go. Yeah, Sizemore, man. It's sad because him and, I mean, look at it, him and um, Robert Downey had similar paths at that time. One was able to correct the course and now is one of the most sought after and well-paid actors in the history of the universe and will go down as being two of the greatest known characters that have ever graced film in modern society. And the other will just be uh, an afterthought. Yeah, I'm hanging in there for Sizemore. Get off that crack, man. If being in... Two great war movies. If being in Saving Private Ryan and then being in Black Hawk Down, you can't correct your career and keep on that trajectory after that. And now you're just like a Bruce Willis stand-in for these director video movies. Even Bruce Willis is doing that. <laughs> no, I know, but at least I mean, but Bruce Willis at least has a bigger, bigger catalog. But I'm no, saying, no, you know, I, I know, it's like he never quite. Uh, that's where Tom he was is. Frustrated, kind of leaving man anyway. Yeah. Well, he kept because he kept. He kept, you know, he just can't. He likes his nose candy more than he likes. And he can't keep that's it. That's facts. I'm sorry. He can't. Yeah, he can't help yeah. himself. So but I'm hanging in there. You I'm know hanging what? in there for size normal team. He's his own obstacle. Size I'm there. <laughs> We're a very small group of one. But <laughs> <laughs> Look, I love him in the stuff he's in. Like when, he when, he, delivers. when he's on his he's game, de- he he's spectacular. And especially, especially spectacular. in MDK, you know, goes to show. In that, he, he delivered in this small scene in True Romance. He delivers in Saving Private Ryan he's and great. Black Hawk he's Down. Gr- he's great he's in those great. films. He is. He just he finds the whole thing hilarious. He just can't keep it together. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, anyway. anyway. The TV interview that they finally do get is great. And it's weird. It's in that TV interview where we get Wayne Gale at his best. I just love how he gets angry. Like, he's just getting angry for no reason. Like I say, he does. So that's your explanation for killing 50. <laughs> <laughs> but he does. <laughs> but, he keeps letting, but he keeps looking off to the side of the camera. And Wayne he does. Him. So, like, he's just... 
Well, it's I like the one is, time like he's starting to complain yeah. and his producer's doing this like you're being a wanker. <laughs> I just yeah. love that she's like. But he's just trying to push. <laughs> he's just trying to push the buttons, isn't he? But he doesn't rile Mickey up. No, that's a great thing. And we get that whole speech about how he's a natural born killer and he's more evolved. But he calls. He says I'm fate's messenger, doesn't he? I think he calls himself. Uh, yeah. Mickey calls himself a fate's messenger. Now, can you believe that they're actually playing this in the prison, like? On TV for the people, like, don't you think they should have been like locked down? Like, I feel like it's a big fuck up on their part that they're letting any of the prisoners know what Mickey has to say because he inevitably is what causes the riot. His little speech eventually triggers some of the people watching this in their. I was wondering, like, why would they one show it, and then two, why would they not have everyone locked down to start with? Like, yeah, like there was a couple of times when Clusty's like, you hear that? That silence. That's not good. Like, he knows a storm is yeah, down. I was gonna. He knows, and this is going to be the tipping point. And he's just still like has no wherewithal to be like these guys should not watch this, and they should definitely all be locked down. We should have extra guards yeah. on for the day. And he totally <laughs> fucks yeah. us up. I was gonna say, like, when he's when Mick when Mickey's being interviewed, that's almost as if he's conducting some sort of like mass hypnosis. Over all the convicts, 100% agree. Yeah, you can sort of just the way everyone's looking at the screen. You know, Mickey's just doing his thing, but it seems to be having this effect on the convicts. He seems to be speaking for them. It's like, you know, they've been put in prison, they're all these aggressive animals together, but they've never been able to vocalize how they feel and yeah. why they're there and what's happened to them. And he well, is see, suddenly the his, mouthpiece yeah, for them. He's got that charisma and um, mm-hmm. kind of knowledge of self that he can put it across in a way that they like to say that they can't, you know. And uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it, but, <laughs> you get, but the thing is, it. while that's happening, you fucking know it as well. You know it's going to go off. You're thinking. For all this craziness in the beginning, this suddenly drops. And it's very Tarantino. It comes that slow burn. It's like we know the bombs under the table, and we know the wick is burning. We just don't know when it's going to get there. Like it's almost like we see the wick, but we don't know how far the ta- in a way that the dynamite yeah, yeah. is. You know, we just keep seeing it burning, and we're waiting for it yeah. to get there, and it fucking does. And, that, and that's and that's obviously um, at the same time you've got Scagnetti with Mallory. Oh, yeah. Yes. And he's just completely turned on as it takes his tie off. Well, yeah. Well, we get to that point in a second because everything is about to just like explode into. It feels like it's almost like a Mexican standoff without it being a Mexican standoff. Like, we know there's trouble brewing. Then there's a moment of comedic relief for a second to kind of bring the tension down for us to then all of a sudden, as soon as we get our laugh out, oh, shit, we're in hot water again. Mm. While they're going around to check what's going on, he's allowed to not be handcuffed because they got three guys or four guys in there with shotguns. He's allowed to walk the room and tell that joke. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so great. Yeah, that's a good, that's a moment. That is a moment. It's so good. He's like, well, what were you doing? Just, <laughs> just and they're laughing, and then he grabs a shotgun, he's killing everybody, and then the prison break starts. In the meantime, Scagnetti is basically trying to get his dick wet with Mallory, and he thinks, because he's killed someone recently, he's on the same level as her. That's yeah. his... Yeah, yeah. Because he thinks, well, I've just killed a prostitute. I'm like you. No, (laughs) not even close. (laughs) But uh, so I'm going to come in here unarmed kind of thing. I'm not worried. I'm going to come in here with Mallory. You know, it's been a long time since you had sex. So I'm going to try to reach on that level because I think I'm hot shit. And she totally just plays him like a fucking fiddle. I love that he's... (laughs) She's pulling on his nipple. <laughs> he's just, it's the best acting that's, that he does. 
in that scene. It's like he really has almost like an orgasmic reaction to her yanking on his other. I wasn't sure how much of that was. Well, yeah, he's like, he's how much like, of that was like him jizzing in his actual pants from this fucking moment. Yeah, he's like, ah, he's like, ah, squeeze my nipples and all this shit. Got- yeah, and then when she does, like he has like this shudder. Yeah, like he, like, you know, like you're it. like, oh, I think he may have come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I might have just left the camera running at that point. If you watch that again, and uh, like, look, it's either the greatest acting or it really happens. Really? You just kind of like look at him. And he's like having a real, a real orgasmic reaction to this moment with her at that moment. And you're just like, what the fuck like, is this? <laughs> What's happening? Is he really actually coming? Like, it really, you were like, hmm. I can't tell if Tom Sizemore is acting or if he's just really enjoying this because this is what happens to Tom Sizemore <laughs> when he's paying yeah, for it. I mean, he's. He's getting paid to do this shit. It's no wonder he's getting off. It's the reverse. I usually pay for my nipples to get squeezed. <laughs> yeah. You're going to pay me, and you're going to watch too. This is fucking great. Uh, we're off. And I get to wear those sad <laughs> fucking underwear. <laughs> the thong. Uh, with, all that, with all that night, with all oh. that nights like that. Who are we kidding? <laughs> yeah, I guess. That's, that's yeah. <laughs> Fuck me. That's just such a great. Oh, uh, but yeah, that. Um, like you say, then we get to the riot, and. Um, <laughs> She starts whooping his fucking ass. Yeah. And then Mickey bursts in. And there's that quick shootout, which is insane in that small yeah. area. And then it's like a, it's a Mexican standoff between him and Jack. And Jack thinks he's got him dead to rights. And Mickey gives up because behind him, Mallory fucks him up. I forget what she stabbed him I couldn't him work that out, actually. Um, I was trying to... I... She, she gets him with something. I forget what it was. And then she gets his, his Desert Eagle... Which is what 357 wasn't the 50 cal like uh, you get in a snatch, and she fucks him up. Yeah, because he's bleeding from the neck Ooh, or whatever. Yeah. And then, yeah, I couldn't work out what she was stabbing him with, but she gets him. Yeah, good, she though. does. He, he gets his definitely. And then from there, it is just well, it's just can't. It becomes the most realistic of everything, and I think at that moment, Oliver Stone was like, "All right, I've given you a lot of hyperized versions of violence to try to help you swallow it, but show you how ridiculous." It is. And then he's like, you know what? We're going to do this whole rest of the way completely like a, like a riot would happen. Mm-hmm. There's no more crazy, like, like them going through and just the insanity of what is happening. As a viewer, the first time through, if you watch it, you're just like, you're overloaded. Like, you just, you feel like you're in horror, in a horror movie. Like, it's like when we get to, we finally get to Kurtz and shit happens um, in Apocalypse mm-hmm. Now. You've seen all this other crazy stuff, but it's when you actually in the mouth of hell, you're just kind of like, everything we just saw is nothing compared to what I'm currently yeah. in. You know what I mean? Like, you realize you're in the mouth of madness, and that's what this this scene felt like to me. It just felt like, oh shit, this is like Apocalypse Now at the end. Well, I'm just missing the Doors song to go along with this. Yeah, it's, it's intense. It's intense. It's carnage. They get injured. It's not like, like if it's a Stallone movie, like maybe, maybe he gets wounded on the side of his arm, you know, but he's still able to power through, and he's one arm shooting everybody, you know, like he's able to survive it. People get shot. People are dropping. Everyone's in pain, possibly dying. It's an insane fucking sequence of violence. Yeah, it's so well handled. And how they shot that, that must have been a, that's a fucking movie in itself, I'd imagine. And then that one guy who kind of helps break them out. Yeah, it's like... Uh, I did not notice this, but in the beginning of the movie, yeah, the opening scene, he is the guy sitting at the diner looking. There's another, he's, in some, he's in another moment as well. I can't remember what it is. He yes, shows up. And he disappears. So in the original script... I guess this guy kills Mickey and Mally once they finally get out. Like, he actually murders them. Right. And people say that he disappears in the opening scene almost as like he's a an apparition, almost like he's like the angel of death coming right. for them, and they right. don't know. In the, in the film, he's more like a guardian angel. Like, it's like he's... 
Yes. He may show up a couple more times in the film. And he's actually, um, I can't remember his name, but he's in, a, he's in Full Metal Jacket as well. Yes, yes, he plays Cowboy. That's right, yeah, that's it. He's Cowboy yeah, Full Metal yeah. Jacket. But yeah, he shows up and kind of um, helps him basically escape, yeah. Yeah, they don't make it out no, without him. No, so he knows all the nooks and crannies of the prison. It's funny because in the movie, they eventually make it into that bathroom where they're being held up. But I don't remember what happens to him after that point. Like, I lose track of him because Wayne comes out with him. Like, they got a gun to him and they got a gun underneath the well, other maybe cop. maybe again, maybe yeah, the other prison guard. And then you've got those two. And I don't, maybe he's holding the camera. I just don't remember. So I don't know if he disappeared. We lose track yeah. of him. Uh, I, Once they start to get a certain yeah, spot. I think he just vanishes again. I think. So I can't remember what happened to him either. You could be right. Because, you know, in Tarantino's script, much like other ones, I believe he kills both of them when they get outside. When they're finally free. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, I think he just maybe banishes. He's just this, I don't know. He's almost their mentor character from, like, in True Romance. He's like the Val Kilmer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the Val Kilmer murderous Elvis Presley yeah. <laughs> from, from the movie. Right. <laughs> that prison break is... Well, it's very, it's exhilarating. You know, it's exhilarating. You, you, you're in the middle of it. You feel like you're in. And you realize suddenly you're actually rooting for two murderers. Like, you, like without knowing it, you're rooting for these two murderers because you want them to get out. And I will say, I'm not rooting for them until that. I didn't feel like I was rooting for Nicky and Mallory until that. Agreed, agreed, because you didn't know what was happening. It was just like this insanity. Yeah. You're like, man, these motherfuckers are... Especially when they do what they there do in the go. end. You're yeah, like, you know, that's a pretty tragic moment, actually. And even Mallory sees that. Mallory sees that, doesn't she? She's like... Oh, yeah, she knows immediately. Yeah. It's weird because it's the combination of then introducing three characters who we're not sure if we like mm. that makes them more likable. We know we don't like Skagnetti instantly. We know we don't like McCluskey. And we're not 100% sure how we feel about Wayne Gale. Mm. Those three people, even though they have done nothing in comparison to what Mickey and Mallory have done, it's just the way that they are presented to us. So we get no backstory in their lives. What we do know is that we know that Mickey and Mallory have been through some traumatic shit. And so we're kind of giving them a little mm. pass. Especially when we meet these three fuck-ups. And we're kind of like, these three are fucking idiots, and we hate them. We can side with these murderous people who've had a terrible upbringing. If we knew the other upbringing, maybe we wouldn't feel the Might same. Be, but we're yeah. like, we don't get any backstory on these three. We just know we don't like them. And so we're rooting for Mickey and Mallory the entire time. Yeah. Now, before we wrap this up, what did you think about the end? Once again, it's a, a projection screen. And once again, they have it's years down the road. This is like probably 10 years later. They're driving around the country in a Winnebago, a la <laughs> maybe it's the Winnebago eventually Mr. White gets in Breaking Bad. <laughs> but they've got kids now, and they've obviously have escaped the law. So I don't know if they're down in Mexico or where they've gone. But we get this whole like end credit sequence of them now happy, and they've stopped murdering, and they're now raising a family. I just sort of felt like well obviously now they've got kids and i've i've fucked up them kids are gonna be that was my wonder like, yeah hmm, I, I, how I, how fucked are these are these little yeah, shits exactly and i, I you know it's like uh maybe a, a killer family then you know you've got <laughs> again again <laughs> again know. to the outside and looking in now it's, just, it's a family going on holiday but yeah but yeah, yeah. mom and dad you know <laughs> got a murky yeah. past. The Nazis, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I just kind of felt like they got a happy ending, obviously, because, you know, you, yeah, because you, you, you eventually are rooting for them to escape, and they, they and then they do get a, a second chance, and, you know, with America, I mean, from, from my perspective, being 
British, you know, America's such a fucking huge country, you probably could. Back then, especially, back in the 90s, we don't have the uh, electronic cyber footprint that you do now. You know, like, if they don't have a cell phone, and they obviously don't have other stuff, like, they could probably roam around for a while without, without being... Notice, and especially if they go to Mexico, they could definitely probably survive down there for or wherever they keep going south into South America. They probably could for quite some time get away, especially back then, because you don't have the digital eye everywhere. You know, cameras everywhere. Everything is connected to this big digital network that we have now. With you know, even with social media, but everything is you can have everything on your phone. That wasn't a thing back in the '90s, so it would be easier for a family of that time to slip unnoticed for a while, especially because they're white. Let's just be completely honest, especially because they're white. They could totally yeah, get and away also, with it. Obviously they and they could easily blend into redneck America. Yeah, but like their kids are... I mean, how old are their kids in that sequence? Like, what, six, seven? It feels like maybe eight. Yeah, maybe the oldest looks like eight or right, so. So, so we're definitely, you know... Maybe a decade yeah, down the road. Yeah, we're a decade yeah. down the road and they're in a fucking Winnebago yeah. going on holiday, you know? So it's kind of like they got away with it, ultimately. Let's ask our guest... Some fucking questions. Well, before I let you ride off into the sunset to enjoy the last bit of hours before you turn into 2022, before we do five hours ahead of time, what was your favorite song on this soundtrack, which I think is in a phenomenal soundtrack? Agreed. I've got two. So obviously, obviously Sweet Jane, the Kaggle Junkies. Ah, oh, so good. Yes, yeah, Sweet Jane is so good. Especially the way they show that to her. They're looking up at the stars. Yeah. And they've just gotten away. And it is yeah, extremely it's a beautiful romantic, section. you know what I mean? It really it is. is. It is a great, yeah. Um, so there's that. that but uh, there's also a short segment in the riot where they play a track called um, Fort Boy by Lard, which is Jello by Afrat, the Dead Kennedys, and Alf Jurgensen at the Ministry. It's kind of like this industrial mousetrap. It's only on for about 40 seconds, but it's just when the riot kicks off. That's kind of like this really, like, um, industrial, thrashy song. That would be my second. Them two, mo- them two stand out to me. They'd be my favorite, too. Good, good um, choices. What about you? For me, it's L7 shit list. I love that. Me, me. And then just kicks in. You made my Is that in the diner? Those girls just fucking That's kill it. That's in the diner, yeah? Is that in the diner? Uh, yes. And it, and it comes again. I think they also play it again later in the, in the um, riot scene as right. well. I know they're trying. Yeah, maybe when the riot scene first kicks off. Yeah. yeah. L7's shitless. Oh, it's, it's such a pump. I do like the Patti Smith song, but it's because it's a great yeah. song. It's a horrible title. Yeah. But it's a great song. It's, uh, you know, yeah. so. No, that's a, yeah, great, great. Great track. I even like the Bob Dylan, You Belong to Me. I'm not a huge Dylan fan, and I think it's his best vocals he does in a song that You Belong to Me that they yeah. sing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to choose. There's a lot to choose from. It's a very. It's a soundtrack. phenomenal yeah. soundtrack. Phenomenal yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. Who was your favorite character from this film? Okay, no. Skagnetti. Skagnetti. All right. I like that. That's a good choice. Skagnetti is a. He's, he's such a character. Look, perhaps not. Perhaps not as a role model. But, <laughs> there are no role models in this film. Very few Tarantino movies written or directed are, have role say, models in them. Very few. Everyone in this movie is a fucking scumbag. Really. Oh, yeah. 100%. 100%. So, I, just, I thought he was the most fun character. You know? It's fair that it's hard to beat those briefs he's got. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about Because when you first see him, he's laying down. You're like, God, he's got these nut huggers on. And then when he's choking the girl, yeah. you're like, oh, God damn, it's a thong. Like, I don't want to see his From his cheeks. overall attitude to his choice of underwear, <laughs> he was my character for the movie. I just thought he just elevates what is already <laughs> an amazing film. <laughs> yeah. It's already a I'm going to have to say Skagnay. What about you? Uh, originally, I thought it was Wayne Gale. <laughs> 
because he's but he's a close second, but I think it's McCluskey. It's Tommy <laughs> Lee Jones, and he's got like the nutcracker he uses to grab people by yeah, the nose. Yeah. Like he's just that little, that little. like I think it's hilarious. Like at that moment, like uh, when Mickey seems like get angry, he like he starts to grab for his yeah. <laughs> grab. For yeah, I know the bit. I know the bit. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, he's just, he's just uh, I just love just, Tommy Lee Jones. He's just floundering around, flailing to... about. Yeah. yeah, he's so good. Yeah, he's got that little pencil mustache. Like I said, Skagnetti, Gale. And him, they just—they are such scene stealers. When they finally get together, they have such great moments in the film. And I know they're not the stars, and the stars are phenomenal. Yeah. But when they come on, they just are such scene stealers. It's just—it's uh, just beautiful. Yeah. It really yeah. is. No, that is. That is a great. What was your favorite line from the film? Okay, to tie actually to kind of ties into Reservoir Dogs because the line because oh, the line right. is by. Comedian Stephen Wright. Another link. To- yes, right. I forget he's in it. That's right. He the, plays like uh, the Mickey psychiatrist. Yes, who, who survived? Because yeah. other ones yeah, were yeah. killed. So, like, I think I Mallory's think, think, was yeah, killed. <laughs> the interviewer says to um, Stephen Wright, What do you think that um, Mallory has stated that she wants to kill you? And Stephen Wright says, I never believe what women say to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's just but I just, I actually genuinely. I genuinely, uh, I genuinely lolled at that moment. I, <laughs> I genuinely had a little giggle at that. Oh, and he said it so perfectly. Well, of course, yeah, of course he does. <laughs> what, about, what, what about you? So for me, it's when they they've broken out and they're in the the riot, and it's Wayne Gay. It's like Batonga, Batonga, Batongaville. Like he's trying to ad lib the riot that's going on. This will go down in the in like the laurels of. Um, it's Batanga, Batanga Val. Like he's like completely having a psychotic break, yet trying to make this like his moment of of um, journalism. Like this is his this is his Watergate. Like this is his moment. He'll be forget remembered. I just love it. It's like makes no sense. He just keeps Batanga, Batanga Val. He just is like, yeah, well, he, he does. He goes on that. his own murderous rampage, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, and then he shoots. He's laying on the floor doing his fucking John oh, Wu impression. So fucking good. So fucking good in that moment. But yeah. I don't know why it's always and they put it in like the soundtrack like that's another great thing about this like they have a lot of the moments in the film that lead into the songs are actually make it to oh, the soundtrack yeah, yeah. so it's in there when that whole sequence of music comes on it's the batonga bell yeah uh, it makes no sense it's just great and the way he delivers it is just pure insanity I, I love it, it makes me laugh every yeah. time no. every time absolutely classic and lastly what was your favorite scene from this insane but yet now looking back on it, great film. I think the drugstore scene from the way it's lit. From the way it starts, the way it yeah, ends, and it, it, it is leads a really to um, obviously the got the put the shoot out, and you've got this really great opera music playing when Mickey's shooting through yeah. the glass. Yep, and then he gets then he gets yep. Rodney King. Just that that sequence, I just think is because you and the again, like I said, the animations in there as well. So yeah. you've got this like poisonous green light, and you've got the. The, the opera music and the shootout and the Rodney King situation. That, to me, I think that was my favorite. It's a good yeah. choice. Good choice. Mine, I think, is the I Love Mallory sequence with Rodney Dangerfield and just the way the way they just do a tongue-in-cheek expose on America at the time and all these wholesome TV shows that we're watching and what, oh, this is what a life is like in the American home and reality 
it's not like that at all. And the fact that Rodney Dangerfield played such a gruesome character, it was just great. I loved the way that they juxtaposed the whole, the whole imagery of it and how he was, and then they bring in the laugh track, and it was great. I mean, there's a lot of great scenes in this film, so it's hard to pick, but that, for me, had a lasting impression, especially the second time through. Because, you know, having seen it the first time or a couple times, you know, back in the 90s, you know, I thought, oh, yeah, they're just doing a little knockoff, a funny knockoff of uh, the Al Bundy show. Why am I suddenly now forgetting the name? Married with Children. Yeah, Married with Children, a little knockoff of that. And now, looking back on it, it was more of a commentary on all the shows and how, you know, we're force-feeding America, that this is what the American home life is really like in middle-class America. And a lot of it for people was more treading the lines of this I Love Mallory show. And when he says cocksucker, uh, he says cocksucker the best. Samuel Jackson, his line is motherfucker. No one says it like him. I don't think anyone says cocksucker like Rodney Dangerfield does in that fucking Wait, movie. Wait, can I get my so hands on good. that meat cocksucker? Cocksucker. Uh, yeah, it's just what he says. So good. So classic. Yeah, that whole I Love Mallory is genius. And, and they must have fucking known that when they did it. And that's a wrap on our third episode. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Steve Smith of the Way Past Cool Podcast for joining me today. As always, I had a blast discussing this film and all things Tarantino with him. Now, you can find his podcast on Mixcloud by typing in Way Past Cool Podcast. And be sure to follow him on Instagram at Ray or on Facebook at the Way Past Cool Podcast. As always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on the church's Facebook page at Church of Tarantino or on Instagram at the Church of Tarantino and on Twitter at Church of QT Pod. And be sure to check Check out our YouTube channel to stay up to date on our weekly Tarantino vs. Top 5s. Now be sure to join me again in two weeks as my good friend Matt LaPlante will once again stop by for our monthly Tarantino Bible study as we sit down to dissect and discuss the I Love Mallory scene from Natural Born Killers. Until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.